Nuance, and I'm Mike Scala, joined as always by Jay Carter, also known as Timid, the hip hop artist and the chair of BLM Tokyo. What's going on, Jay? Nah, not much. Everything is uh, everything is everything. Everything is everything. Lauren Hill, huh? Okay, there you go. See, it's it's, well, it's good to have someone who got, has that music uh, that music knowledge around. Well, we have a special guest with us this week. We are joined also by Erica Shimizu Banks, who is from Shizo. And she's going to talk about some of the stuff that she's up to. What's going on, Erica? Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. One thing, one thing that I'm, I'm curious about is uh, last week we did talk about you were um, talking about getting into an escape room and you were a little bit nervous. So mm -hmm. you said that you have done it so what's what's going on what happened yeah well technically i guess i am not here because we did not escape in time so i think that once we're trapped in the room indefinitely right but i'm actually kind of upset because we were screwed out of the full time and here's what happened we were told to arrive 15 minutes early we didn't get there 15 minutes early to be fair but we did get there and this is in midtown manhattan there were two floors that had this escape room set up so we went to the floor that was listed on the address of the place and we had to wait behind this, this big group who had some kind of confusion about their credit card and they were like you have to have the same credit card that you used to book the reservation you have to have a hit here or at least get a picture of it and they try to figure out how to get this credit card or whatever and it took a while for them to get checked in and get their stuff figured out by the time we got up there they said to us oh you guys have to go downstairs to your, your room is one floor down so we went to the one floor down and it was a whole different place now and they're saying uh because we didn't get there on time now it's like half an hour almost beyond the start time they're saying that they had to take time off of these time we would have, but they didn't tell us how much it would be. So I was like, okay, maybe it's gonna be two minutes, three minutes. I had no idea. I get in, we start the thing. They took 15 minutes off out of the hour. Now we're already locked in a room when I find this out. I still don't know how long it's supposed to take. So I'm like, all right, maybe we can do it in 45 minutes. I don't know, my first time doing it. But no, we couldn't finish it in the 45 minutes. Um, we did get pretty far along the line. I wasn't the biggest fan of it, to be honest with you. I liked the concept of it. And I really wanted to get into it, but Maybe you have different experiences you can tell us about the ones that you did. This one seemed to be all about finding numbers that you use to then open up another combination lock. And it was like one combination lock after the other. So you got three numbers or whatever it was to open up the next lock. And then you got a clue, which led you to the next three numbers. And you, just, you went for lock after lock after lock after lock. And it was kind of boring to me because the whole setup was you were in a detective's office trying to solve a murder mystery, all this kind of stuff. But it kind of took me out of the experience when all I was doing was trying to find numbers. So it was like more like a like a number puzzle than a, a real murder mystery. It sounds like it was a badly written scenario um, because it. I mean, some of them, some of them would have you know maybe a lock type of thing, but they'd also be you know um, puzzles and things you could deduce or clues that you would look and find maybe there's there's something the next clue is involved with three different things in the room and you got to piece it together or whatever from whenever the clue is or, or whatnot um so what they do is like every i don't know couple of months or whatever they they change the scenario and have a new one because you know you want people to come back and whatnot so maybe right. it was a bad badly written scenario um but yeah i enjoy them i've i've done i've done two two of them, one in the Philippines and uh, one there in the States. 
Um, and I had, you know, I enjoyed both of them. I did, we escaped on the, the one in the States, did not escape from the one in the Philippines though. Yeah, this particular place had several different rooms. I'm not sure if they ever changed the scenarios or not. It just seemed like they had a lot of options to choose from over two different floors of this building. So if you do one, you can go back and do one of the others next, I guess. I'm not sure if I would go back based on my experience with this. Yeah, how many people did you go in with? Just two. And that's what I was thinking. I was thinking maybe because of what you said last week, that when you had a bigger group, you were able to do it. When you had two people, you couldn't do it. But with this one, I'm not sure if the bigger group would have really mattered because it was just clue after clue after clue. It wasn't like you can split it up and say, you guys do this, you guys do this. You had to focus on one clue at a time. The only thing it might have helped with was trying the different combination locks in the room because once you got the clue, you weren't sure which lock would open up with that number. So you had to try a few different locks till you found it. Right. Have you ever done one of the escape rooms, Erica? I have to say I haven't, but I did one of those like participatory kind of like theater things uh, in New York, like near the High Line. And it was called Sleep No More, if I remember correctly. And it was like a ghost, like ghost story, Um, kind of a precursor. Yeah, you could. It was kind of like a precursor to escape rooms. Like this had to be like almost probably eight years ago, like almost 10 years ago. So it's been a while. I'd like to try that too. Um, I, I like those types of things. I think it's fun. It's that participatory thing. You're in the middle of it. The story has to, of course, be, you know, be good. Um, it sounds like to me, like I said, it might just might not have been a good story because the ones that I've been in, um there could be different things working on at, at at any one time like you don't have to solve everything in a sequential order which i could see how that could be like you know could get repetitive if it's the same right. type of puzzle over and over again right and the way this was set up they let you wave at the camera in order to get the next clue because they give you like six clues throughout the course of the the room oh, right, right. but the thing is we got these numbers and we waited for the next clue because we thought, okay, the numbers weren't opening up the lock. Maybe there's something else that we need to know, more information or whatever. But they didn't want to move to the next actual clue. They kept telling us, you got the right numbers, but they're in the wrong order. But so like they wouldn't actually give us the next clue. They were just stuck on the numbers that we had. And these were like separate from the main clues that you got. It was the instructor or whoever, you know, the person controlling the room on the outside, kind of like giving you hints on what you were doing. And they wouldn't give us the next actual clue. The other thing I didn't like about it, Say it again. They take time off usually. They don't take time off usually. No, I said if if they give you a hint, usually they take time off. Or was this oh, no, not this a is hint? part of the game? This is part of the game. They were saying that there are six clues, and and you can see on the screen like every time you got one, they got checked off, and it was saying like like you do this when you're ready for your next clue. But in addition to those six clues, the instructor or the the game master or whoever was also giving us clues based on what we were doing. But she said that was also going to be part of the game. Like they watch you and they they try to help you out. I guess along the way but it was very serial like we were stuck on got these numbers but you have to figure out how to open the lock with these numbers it wasn't like we can get a clue to help us with the larger picture or something else that came into play it was it was like one thing at a time another thing i didn't like about it was they spent a lot of time in the beginning basically saying don't touch anything on the wall and they had these little red stickers they were like you know these are screwed in don't try to take it out don't touch it it's fine you can look at it but don't touch it but then at the end, when she came back in, she was like, oh, yeah, one of the clues was you have to like press into this picture and it opens up. It's like a secret compartment. I'm like you spent so much time saying don't touch anything on the wall. I wouldn't even go near those pictures, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, it sounds like I would try again, try a different one. Lixa in the in the comments has uh, offered up some uh, options. 
Um, try adventure room. They're more interactive. I've never, I don't know what the difference is with an adventure room versus an escape, escape room, maybe just the premise of it. But um, I was telling Mike last week that this idea of these escape rooms actually started in Japan. Like the, the first ones were in Japan. Um, and I think they stemmed from some of the, um, the TV shows. They would have these types of TV shows where they put the celebrities in these uh, escape room scenarios and just watch them try to figure it out. So. I would not be surprised. I think Japan still kind of uh, reigns supreme when it comes to innovating through games and finding ways to entertain people yeah. of all ages. Well, they've got, uh, yeah, things have changed a little bit. Um, you know, you're talking back, uh, you know, you, you mentioned eight eight years ago, I think you go back a little bit way, a little ways, and uh, some of the TV shows in Japan were quite brutal. They had to eventually change after um, some incidences. It's kind of crazy. Well, this was apparently based on the movie Saw, and uh -huh. I found the concept of it to be weird also, because I get you're in a detective's office trying to solve a murder mystery, like that's all good, but they give you possible suspects like, well, maybe it's the wife or maybe it's the, the mistress to having an affair. He's going to come clean and she wants to avoid it being found out all these different things that make sense. But then it turns out that you're lured into the detective's office by the killer who has kidnapped the detective who's trying to solve the mystery. And you have an hour or in our case, 45 minutes to figure out who did it to save the detective. Otherwise we're going to be, kidnapped next and they show you the detective he's got like fake blood on him and looks like his arm is cut off so i think it's based on saw like where they kidnap you and they give you these puzzles to solve and if you don't solve them, you're gonna be killed next i didn't understand though because it didn't seem like a serial killer type scenario it was at first like the suspects were people who had a motive to commit this crime based on personal relationships with the, the victim but mm. how is it a, a serial killer now just trying to torture random people it didn't really fit into that whole story to me yeah, maybe it just wasn't written very well. I would try some, try a different one. You know, maybe and see if it comes out. So, I don't know. Maybe the next time I get up there, we'll have to do go do one. But you got to have more than two people. You got to yeah. have. There's just too much to do. You know. So. Anyway, you you like those types of games, Erica? I have to admit, I don't. <laughs> I am not a game person. I, I think I'm relatively fun, but not into board games. Don't invite me to game night, please. Uh, yeah, it's not my thing, but I, you know, respect. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get claustrophobic. That was the thing I was concerned about. I was just immersed in trying to find the next clue, you know, the next uh, combination for the locks and all. So I wasn't thinking about I'm stuck in a small room that never even crossed my mind. In fact, the time flew by fast. I didn't even realize I was, st was stuck in a room. Yeah, yeah. That I, I didn't think that would be any kind of an issue. Um, I mean, it's it, first of all, it's usually not super tiny. It's not something that, you know, there's, you, there's room to move around and whatnot. And you can really leave whenever you want to. It's not that it's actually locked. It's just more that... There's a time limit. If you if you leave before the time limit's up, then you you just lose the game, basically. So, well, here's the last thing I'll say on this that kind of annoyed me. Before we began, they said if you have to use the bathroom, use it now. So we said, all right, I guess we should try using the bathroom. But that just added more time to it. And so, like, they told us to use the bathroom, and then they took time off for starting late. But it's like it was really what they were doing that they kind of made us late. <laughs> but you know, 
It is. They it is. owe you fifteen minutes. That's right. Yeah, that's funny. All right. Oh, you have a fan in the chat, Erica. Uh, we have a uh, someone in the chat, Louis Katzen, lifelong fan of Erica S. Banks. Here, awesome discussion, fam. Oh, oh so hey, Louis. You're your celebrity, yes, old so friend. Hardly, hardly, but it's nice when when friends uh, tune in. I appreciate you, Louis. Yeah, very nice. Shout out to everyone checking us out. And every week we do a poll here. So I figured we'd go over our poll results from last week. We talked about $5.5 million being allocated through the city of New York to build a hip hop museum in the Bronx. And there was some pushback on that when it was announced. Some people said with everything going on right now, you have so many pressing issues. Why are you spending $5.5 million on a hip hop museum? So we put the poll out to ask people if they thought this was a good use of money or if the priority was in the wrong place. And on my Instagram, 71% of respondents said it was a good use of money, while 29% said that there were more pressing issues and it should have been allocated elsewhere. Yeah, mine was 100% said it was a, a good idea. I mean, I guess I've got a lot of hip hop heads in my timeline, so that's gonna be like the answer. What do you think about that, Erica? Well, I think compared to the NYPD budget of 11 billion, the city can spare 29 million for a hip hop museum. Five, no, just five million. Five, oh, point five, million. five million, even less. So yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's just so key and core to the city's culture and cultural foundation. You know, it's kind of beyond the music at this point. Exactly, exactly right. And that's what we had discussed last week. It's really a culture and it's a very important cultural export of New York. And a lot of people even in New York don't realize that. But I was encouraged by the fact that it wasn't only hip hop heads who voted yes. I can see who's voting in these polls. And I was kind of checking them out. Some people were actually more conservative folks, but they understood the importance of hip hop as a force and as a culture and a movement in New York City. And that's encouraging to me. That speaks to progress. Yeah. And we've talked about it before. I've said it many times that hip hop is probably, to me, uh, the biggest cultural movement and push for civil rights or, or connection um, since the civil rights movement, because it connected so many different people and from so many different areas. And, it, and as far as for, uh, uh, you know, black people and Latino people, it made people more familiar with us um, because they became part of the hip hop culture. You know, I mean, you got it in every country, there's a hip hop scene, you know, and they look to, you know, you know, American hip hop artists and, and New Yorkers and whatnot. And so there's a kinship there that comes because of this culture. And it's, you know, when you got people that feel that connection and, and, and they feel they're the same or together, then you're gonna, there's barriers that are gonna drop. There's gonna be more familiarity, there's gonna be biases that drop, so. Right, I received a message also, hip hop is a major genre of music created in New York City. The historical value is immeasurable, so. Yeah. Agreed. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm sure you can tell that we are hip hop dudes. <laughs> well, I mean, you are, a timid MC. That's how I know you. So <laughs> yeah. And, and this, you know, he's Mike Scala, but he's also Paizan MC as well. Um, Very so cool. We do, you know, we used to perform all over different parts of the country as well together. 
Um, so yeah, right. Hip-hop. And we saw firsthand how hip hop brings people together. I mean, remember going to Simon's Rock College, for example, in Massachusetts, and all the kids there on campus loving the fact that hip hop was there. We performed it at a high school in South Philly. Same thing. I mean, it's something that people really gravitate to, and it does bring people of all different backgrounds together, and they could appreciate this art form. And you know, KRS even said I was watching a lecture that he did. If you go to other countries, like to your point, Jay it's even more prominent than it is in the US. I mean, hip hop is really what makes the people move around the world. And it does come from New York, that's where it originated in the South Bronx, but it is a worldwide phenomenon now. And it's really a worldwide culture. No matter where you are on planet earth, people are united behind this idea called hip hop. Right, absolutely. And there's also, you know, the innovation and like the access of it, you both probably definitely know this more than I do. So I'm even a little, intimidated to step into this conversation with no please New York rappers but uh you know it's something I'm excited to learn more about as I spend more time here but um you know the barrier to entry uh was was broken open and a lot lower right you didn't need to know how to read music or play an instrument or have expensive uh you know technology to beatbox to make lyrics um and you didn't have to reference you know, the classics or literature, whatever, even though so many rappers and MCs do um, deftly, but it was a way to speak about the black experience in many ways and the experience of of being being poor and oppressed and it gave language right to to people who who were stripped of it for so long, and I think that is what so continues to be so inspiring and revolutionary about hip-hop um especially around the world um yeah it's the you know it's the voice of protest it's the voice of the people in so many ways absolutely and 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 speaking to that the voice of protest um a lot of people don't realize that the the protest style the modern protest style in japan comes from hip-hop there was a a a hip-hop mc um and talking in the, the the late 90s 2000s that when they were doing protests, they adapted the hip hop call and response style. You go to any any type of march or protest in Japan today, they don't happen very often, but when they do, you'll see not just people walking in the street with protest signs, there's usually led by a truck with someone on the, the bed of the truck with a microphone and a speaker, they're pumping music, they're doing call and response. That's like modern protesting in Japan now. And it all comes from hip hop and it was the the uh, the move group that it started this back I think it was in the late 90s. Very so, cool. I didn't crazy. know that. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty crazy. Our roots are deep around the world. That's right. Well, so. speaking of crazy Jay, some people are calling out the New York Times. They're saying that their endorsement process or results I guess are crazy. There are three congressional seats that are contested right now in New York City for the August 23rd primary coming up and early voting has already begun. And there's some controversy over the fact that there were three white males who were endorsed by the New York Times in their op-ed. And some people said that that's racist or it's problematic. Um, what do you think? Do you think it's it's a crazy thing or you know, is it worthy of, of a further look? I, I, I think I, I looked into it and, and some of the, the, the articles and stuff and it, I don't know, it just, I don't think it's that crazy. I mean, there are going to be tons of different candidates 
And, you know, not every time is every person going to be a mix of or, or going to be all, you know, people of color are going to be all women are going to be all whatever it's sometimes it's going to be this way now if this was some sort of a pattern all the time then i think it'd be something to to look at but if it's just like this one cycle that it just so happened to be three white men i don't see that them being white really plays any sort of uh issue into it you know i mean they they're previously you know they endorsed uh, what was uh, a couple of women, the women um, that were running for um, the what was it, mayor or governor of, of New York. They endorsed uh, Catherine Garcia for mayor. Right. Exactly. So I don't I don't think it doesn't seem like it's a, a pattern to, to, to be enraged about. I think it's it just kind of speaks to the, the climate right now of everyone upset about everything to mm -hmm. to just to, to speak on something, you know. Right. There's also a danger there, I think, when you want to jump down their throats that quickly and you know assume the worst in people like that, because it's counterproductive to what you're trying to do. Like if you're pushing for progress, you're pushing for positive change, that can help uh, turn people against Democrats, even if they think this is what they're all about. Um, right. They're not, you know, you want to look at results and we talked about, for example, the Queen's Link. Like I was able to get a lot of signatures from elected officials and I can't take a lot of credit for it myself, but I think I was effective in helping this group gain this support throughout Queens based on my relationships with the officials. And that can bring about a lot of positive change in the area. And if we get the Queen's Link built, think about the communities of color that are gonna be positively impacted by that. I mean, I think there's value in that in looking at the work that the person is doing and not just who the person is. There's actually, ironically, I think, a form of racism and being quick to tokenize and say, you know, they, it has to be someone who looks like this or, you know, who is of this group if you're not looking deeper into what they represent and what they're actually doing and who can bring about the best results. Right. You know, it's, it's, we're, we're looking for a diverse society here, but that means that we need to look at it, you know, everyone and, and push for equality and not just uh, look for tokenizing. Well, I'm, I'm new here, but I'm not sure if I completely agree with the the application of that in this instance especially just knowing you know again knowing what i know which is very little about new york city politics but following politics generally and from a federal level i mean like we've got some great candidates here in mondaire jones and Yulene Yuli nui um and uh i think what people might be speaking to is that you know these guys especially nadler's great um but uh, these are folks who have been part of the establishment Democrats for a while. And given kind of the stakes that we're in, in terms of inflation, in terms of uh, the impact of structural racism and like kind of late stage capitalism on so many things, climate change, uh, the increased stratification between wealthy, especially white folks, especially in New York. and people of color who are seeing incomes and jobs and opportunities drop while policing and criminalization within communities of color increases. It seems pretty tone deaf, pretty establishment, pretty seeking of the status quo to endorse three white men, um, a couple of whom have held their positions for a while. Uh, and, you know, to your point about tokenization, I think that happens when uh, folks are selected to be a representative of like a race, right, or a community without actually 
advancing or representing the viewpoints and politics of that community, but instead echoing the viewpoints and politics of the, the status quo and the dominant party or dominant community. Um, and well, you know, that's think, not what's happening yeah. here. But I think tokenism can also just be picking someone because of the group that they're in and not because of what they represent or if they're qualified or, you know, just absolutely on the outside, right? Not absolutely to who they are. Yeah. Like we, we've seen it, we see it in politics, um, especially in the current climate but, climate, but we saw it like, for example, when Hillary was running, there was a large faction of people who wanted to vote for her just to put a woman in the White House. Not, not to say that she wasn't qualified because she was the most qualified in the race, but there were people who were strictly on that idea that this is the only reason why I'm going to vote for her instead of being like, okay, look, she's got all these other qualifications. This is why you should vote for her, not simply because she's, she's a woman. Totally. Right. But I'd say that's representation over tokenization. Okay. Okay. So do you think like with these three, like, I mean, could it just be that just this this time these were the three that they liked, and it wasn't specifically that the the well, people picking it was that okay, I'm 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 only looking at at white men this time. Right, and I want to speak to that point also, and then give it to Erica because, um, you know, Erica mentioned the idea of these were more establishment candidates, and I think that would be more of a criticism that would be well received. I think oftentimes it comes down to the messaging. If you just right automatically go to, oh, they're white males, it's racism and sexism, I think that is very divisive and can turn people off. But if you start speaking to what they represent, their two establishment, maybe talk about their positions, they weren't the best candidates, then you can have, I think, more of that nuanced discussion in a way that isn't just, you know, fire throwing that turns people away from, again, the Democratic Party. This type of rhetoric that we're seeing is going to lead to more Republicans being elected. And that's a dangerous thing if you want to see Democrats win these elections. Not talking about these particular seats because these are safe Democratic seats, but I'm talking about the, the general point here. Um, so I do think, you know, focusing on what they represent is more of a productive conversation than strictly saying it must be racism, must be sexism because of who they are. Yeah, and I you know I'd have to read the criticism I have, and I saw just like a little line on Twitter, and I've just been kind of taking mental health breaks from <laughs> from social media, so I didn't dig in. But um, I think you know when like regular quote unquote people, right? When just folks are like chiming in, and when you have like 140 characters on Twitter or the small comment box on uh, you know in the comment section, it's hard to get into the nuance of it. And I think when folks are saying they're choosing these people because they're white, you know, underneath it, and maybe subliminally, that is what's going on. But what they're perhaps trying to say and trying to get to is that the folks that have been, these men that have been um, endorsed have been endorsed because they represent things as they are in the status quo. And what is the status quo? It's white men in power. Um, so maybe that wasn't necessarily the most sophisticated, you know, overwhelming response, but that could be what folks are getting to. Not all the time, right? right. But I think another part of this too is like more perhaps is like, what does this say about the New York Times? So, so what if, you know, these guys are very qualified, obviously, like, again, I said, love Nadler. Um, and uh, Maloney has been a longtime, you know, resident, et cetera, of his district, his constituents know him well, he's been a longtime representative. Um, and they acknowledge even in their endorsements that their challengers are worthy challengers. So I think what people might be getting to is like, 
what is it about the New York Times's point of view now and the folks that represent the Times or speak for the Times that they are intentionally like kind of advancing moderate mainstream white male candidates over the next generation of qualified people of color who would actually represent their districts more accurately as well if we're just looking at ethnic or gender background. And so I think that might be part of the criticism. Yeah, and I think you're right that there's some overlap there between their identities and their politics, maybe. Um, and to Jay's point, I think, you know, asking why is New York Times endorsing these candidates more so than their identities, I think they do represent that more establishment moderate, if you want to call it that lane, as far as the Democratic Party goes. And maybe that's the direction that the Times is trying to move in right now, seeing the results or seeing the backlash, I guess, to some of these far left candidates getting spanked and, you know, be, just being unpopular nowadays. Right. And, and I mean, I, and I also get, um, you know, the point that you speak on, Erica, as well as, you know, not only just as the representation of, of the areas that they're running for, if they're more represent, representative of the people and how that can be a positive and beneficial impact on those communities. Um, and as far as working with, being able to work with those communities. So I think that, you know, that does play a part. I did see in, and I think it was the New York Mag did criticize the New York Times and saying that they were sticking it to the, the progressives. So they took the position that the the New York Times's choices were actually you know something a dig at progressives uh, instead of you know I didn't see that they were going the, that they were white men route it was more that they were digging at progressives by choosing I guess the right. tomatoes, um, and that's and that's a good and that that's an astute observation because you know like Erica said there is some overlap that you can't entirely separate the ideas but let's say they were all white men but they had all different politics let's say they had a, a conservative white man a progressive white man and a moderate white man then I think there would be more of a case that okay what do they all have in common they're all white men whereas now you can kind of tie them together to that politics so to that, to that you know ideology to that lane or, or what have you and so it does I think come off as I don't know if you want to say race baiting, whatever it is, but you know, maybe unsophisticated to just make that criticism that they're that it's it's a racist or sexist thing. Lixa in the chat says, I would vote for the best qualified person, not based on gender, sexual orientation, or race. If people continue to say racism instead of having a discussion of why people will be turned off. And I agree with that. I think it's all about messaging. It's about the way you have these conversations. And I do think that that's a, a toxic way to have the conversation if we're really about progress and we're trying to see the best candidates win and if we're trying to move forward as a society. I, I, yeah, half, I, mean, I half agree with, with Lixo. Go ahead, Erica. Well, I wonder, you know, what does progress mean to you and what does progress mean to New York City then, right? Because if uh, these establishment folks are getting this endorsement, what that's showing is that the New York Times is playing it safe and playing it moderate in a time of like extreme conditions. We're seeing oh. extreme, you know, stratification, extreme poverty, extreme like whatever rises or at least responses to violence and racial strife and all of these things. And so, you know, what does that say about your vision of progress for the city when you're choosing the safe bets? I good, think good, though, good that stability, a concern, 
Hold on a second. Let me, let me just make this point. I think okay. there's a concern of winning the midterms, not just in New York City, because New York City is a safe Democratic area in most districts and, and certainly in these. So that's not the concern of losing these seats to Republicans. But I think that the overall messaging is trying to get to a point where the Democrats can win the midterms, which is progress. If you if you think that Republicans as a whole are holding us back and holding progress back, you want Democrats to be able to win. Um, they're not going to be able to do that with some of these candidates that are pushed again. Yes, they can win these safe Democratic districts, but overall nationwide, it's going to be a net loss. And that's one of the reasons Democrats are going to lose if they're going to lose, because the perception is the party is being pulled and being controlled by the far left extremists. Now, um, I think that there is a valid point in in doing that. I think that you have to win if you want progress. I mean, if we're going to lose seats, is that really progress? Right. Um, and, and, and to that point about choosing moderates or them playing it safe and these being turbulent times, the question I would ask um, is, could it be that stability might be necessary in those turbulent times? Introducing these far extreme well, candidates on either side, could that be a, a hindrance in a time when it's so I, I think it's a misnomer also to paint these candidates as the status quo. I think they're on a relative scale, more moderate, perhaps, than some of their opponents. But there's still Democrats who are pushing for a forward thinking vision. They're not Republican candidates, not really conservative candidates. They right. maybe are just more qualified because they've got that experience. And yes, you could say that makes them more part of the establishment. But there's also value in that in being around and knowing how government works at that high level. You know, a lot of people. For example, with Goldman, they think that he's not as qualified because he hasn't been in office before. I think that's a, a fair critique of him as well. But he was the counsel who you know, worked to impeach Trump, and that resonates with a lot of people. So, you know, a lot of these folks do have experience at that kind of high level, which is necessary in the job. I don't think it's fair to say that just because they are, relatively speaking, more moderate, they somehow represent uh, moving backwards or, or the status quo. Well, I think, you know, a couple of things on that. I'm not sure if that was necessarily my 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 word for them, but in terms of establishment, in terms of them having served before and and I correct myself in saying New York State versus New York City. But um, I think, you know, part of the issue is is that what research has showed about um, political kind of states is that uh, or the status of politics in a country and where laws, et cetera, go is that in order to counter kind of extreme conservatism or the extreme right, which has kind of had its way with this country for the last seven, you know, since since Trump was elected and, and since then, you actually do need the pull of a more assertive uh, left to bring us to center. And, in, and instead having a stronger moderate um, kind of base or, or stronghold of, of political representation isn't enough to counter the uh, the extreme pull to the right. And in this time of, you know, Roe versus Wade being overturned and so many, the sovereignty of Native American tribes uh, being put at risk due to late, latest Supreme Court decisions, the domination of the Supreme Court by conservatives with people, you know, the overload of people who are not qualified for these positions, but us having very little recourse beyond like kind of stated, um, not even law, but just uh, tradition and practice in these federal bodies, you need a stronger, innovative, progressive left to actually undo 
and actually kind of like bring folks into a center that is a true melding of like progressives and conservatism. Um, a moderate base that's already kind of tilted towards conservatism is not going to do that. In fact, it's going to bring the country into conservatism as the baseline. And um, yeah, and this is well, but this is based on this is based on research, right? Like this is not necessarily about like the strategy of politics. And I think too, uh, Democrats aren't taking advantage of the backlash to the road overturning decision where polling across the country, including in Republican districts, was that they went too far with this. And people are scared about what this will mean for their lives. And this is something the Democrats should be taking advantage of. Absolutely. How do we undo this? I I agree with that. Most folks' minds are not going to do that. And I see this is where I come into agreement as well um, um, with that idea that there does need to be some more progressive-minded people that that are brought into the fold because if you've got just simply the 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 moderates and the establishment that have been there for years and decades then you're not going to make these new changes these progressive things that need to be done and this is also where i i kind of disagree a little bit halfway agree with what lixa had said in regards to talking about race while i don't believe that in this new new york times endorsement that it's kind of a racial thing um at least on the surface I do think that it's still the idea that the, the, the reality of race does need to be addressed and does need to be acknowledged and can't be ignored as far as structural racism goes, as far as how, you know, the majority of the power center is in, in one, one race and it's how it's historically been. Those things do need to be addressed. But it, for me, I do, it takes a long road for me to get to racism. Right. I have to. There's a lot of hurdles for before I make that statement. And so just on the surface, this didn't grab that to me. It just kind of seemed like it was a flashpoint for the moment. Right. But also it comes back to this idea of having to win. And, you know, you could talk about data, but you could also look at the real data points of what happened last year, for example, where Democrats were spanked and progressive candidates, quote unquote progressives, who I would argue in many cases are actually regressive, but they hold themselves out as progressive. Right they oftentimes lost. And you saw even in the New York City Council races, Republicans won at a rate much higher than they've ever had before. I mean, before last year, we had, what, one Republican in Queens and two in Staten Island, and that's it. Now you saw more of them win, and even in districts where you thought were safe Democratic districts. Now, why was that? Because there was this perception amongst voters that the Democratic Party is pulled too far to the left, or maybe that's not even the right way of saying it. Maybe the way of saying it is it's being controlled by these extremists who um, aren't really progressive because aren't really trying to move us forward. They occupy that space. They almost have a a monopoly on the word, but it's not really fair, right? They're not candidates who are suitable or who are aligned with where the electorate is. And I think that's necessary to win. I mean, we can look at my own district because I was a former Democratic nominee for the city council in my district. So I've got plenty of data on voters in my district and how these legends turn out. Last year, and the New York Times, by the way, is partly responsible for this. They push this narrative that the district is split down the middle where the north of the district is all progressive people of color and the south of the district is all conservative white folks. And that's not the case at all. It's a much more complicated picture than that. But the New York Times reporter admitted to me they were telling that story because their audience is not based 
primarily in New York City. They're a nationwide, even a worldwide publication. So they're trying to tell a story that's going to sell newspapers or get views in Ohio or Idaho or Texas. They're not concerned about accurately representing the dynamics of a district and the nuances and intricacies. They want to tell the sensational story that's going to look good, you know, be like, oh, look what's happening in Queens. There's this crazy showdown in this, in this, in this one district. And that's a dangerous thing to do. And it's also not accurate. Now, if you want to look at the data, the voters now district, even the, the so-called progressive immigrants of color in the North aren't really that. They're much more complicated than that. And they wanted public safety addressed. They didn't want people to talk about abolishing the police or abolishing private property. Some of these messages were not resonating with the actual voters. So the solution to winning that district, as it turned out, was not having far left rhetoric and messaging. Yes, some of the policies should be more progressive, but in a truly progressive way, not in a regressive way that's wrapped around progressive rhetoric. The idea is to align with the voter in such a way that can allow you to win a district. And some people will call it moderate just because you don't check all of the boxes of one lane. If you don't check all the conservative boxes or make all the progressive tweets, you're seen as a moderate because you, you dare to have that nuance. But most of the voters do want that nuance. And if you're going to come in, in such a way that makes them think that you're run by the crazy extremists on either side, it's a recipe for losing a district. And we've seen that countless times last year. You know, I think, you know, there's a few things going on with that too, right? And one is like the uh, decimation of media, period. And that like, we need local papers. We need local papers um, to understand those nuances, to reach out to community, to represent the viewpoints of those constituencies. And we have that less and less to the point where a New York Times is supposed to be the voice and the, you know, kind of like insight um represent the insights of the entire country or certain aspects of the entire country and not new york right um and the decimation and then like conglomeration of, of media um, and journalism sites um is contributing to that and you know that becomes kind of a tech conversation too i think too it's important to distinguish between like social media and and like i think you were kind of alluding to mike like rhetoric versus actual policy. And, um, and with that, you know, I think it's pretty reductive when folks um, and has the New York Times has done a lot recently, which has been really disappointing, sort of taken uh, these like kind of blanket uh, reductive um, stances on rhetoric that folks have seen on social media or that has proliferated on social media and conflated that with the policy issue or the, the public, you know, public safety, public health, whatever issue it is, and merge the two. When in reality, in community, on the ground, and even at perhaps the representative level, there and at city council level, there has been so much more of a nuanced conversation. Um, like defunding the police does not mean abolishing the police and they're you know no, but there are plenty people saying abolishing but there are plenty of people saying that also so that's, there's also but but it's also again like where are we waiting um our like where are we waiting our our uh focus so that is in tweets but who's actually saying that as policy and what do they mean when they outline those policy plans and there have been really detailed actually like very thoughtful nuanced ideas of like how to reallocate resources that have been dedicated to policing they could have gone elsewhere right but it's been right. reduced to like abolish or defund and then there's criticism in the new york times like why do you fund lost democrat seats 
right? Or in whatever. But, but, of that, the but that's six accurate. But that's, that but that's very accurate criticism because it's all about the messaging. If you want to look at policy and people's you know political ideologies in terms of what policies they support, you're going to find a lot of overlap even between Republicans and Democrats, right? People kind of want the same things uh, across the board. Just the way of talking about them varies. So elections and were won and lost on messaging, and messaging is, is very important for that reason. Absolutely. And that's why I kind of blame journalists here, where it's like your your job is to tease out that nuance and make that clear and not contribute to the confusion and the conflation. But I think especially in the last year, that's what has been what's been happening. Um, you know, it's also their job job to parse through the noise of, say, what is trending on Twitter or whatever and get down to what are the actual issues? What are people saying on the ground? Um, what are the policies? How do we break these down? What are the proposals? And that's lost. And then also, depending on who is the messenger, a lot of um, newspapers have not been very thorough in interrogating their sources. There was, uh, you know, a huge, I think folks are, you know, becoming, becoming more and more aware, right, of like, um, how like messaging from police departments and police unions is done and like whether that's really based on fact or evidence and what is the real role is this a pr role or is this an informatory uh, informative like you know uh an informational kind of situation and that kind of nuance needs to be teased out teased out and challenged um and then in terms of uh you know there was a there was a scandal with the new york with the washington post uh, recently, and when one of their longtime journalists, who's very well regarded, um, said he had several sources about the impact of uh, of Roe, uh, the Roe v. Wade being overturned, it turned out it was one. It was right. a single source, and so, so you know, that's that's really the journalist. That's that's the fourth estate's job, and that's why they play such an important role. But at the same time, like uh, I think we we have cause to be pretty critical here, and how it has resulted in like shaping elections, especially recently. And then my final point will be that, yes, I think that um, philosophy about like playing it safe was a bit more accurate last year. But now that we've seen what happens when the far right, not just Republicans, but truly the far right dominate every sphere of government um, at the local up to the federal level, um, I think folks do now have an appetite and recognize, okay, maybe we do need a bit more of a stronger shift to the left because how how are we combat like they've gone too far they've gone too far even for their own party and i think that, that also brings in the the thing that we were going to talk about whereas um tim miller who was a republican strategist uh, and he worked with the the bush administration and he talked about how strategy in in feeding stuff to the media was about winning the next news cycle and it was all about stoking these these fears that um, you know their constituents or their the people that they're game, aiming for have, so that they could get them to their side. It didn't matter about the news story. It didn't matter about informing. It was more about manipulating. And he apparently dropped out of, of the Republican Party when Trump came on board. He saw that it was going even further. But he admits that at the time, even when he was working with the Bush administration and the Republican Party's idea was this to sow this sort of discord and to to ride that coattails. And so as a journalist, um, like you said, Erica, like they supposed to disseminate, uh, they're supposed to, to sift through that, pull out what 
what is right, what is not, and, and inform instead of either adding their own bias or going along with what they're being fed. Right. And I think people on both sides, really all sides of politics at this point, are just tired of the extremism, right? They want someone who can be a nuanced leader because they understand that being an elected official, being a public servant is about that nuance. It's about leadership. And it's not a leader to blindly follow and to just, you know, do the retweets and hashtags. We, we, we tease that. Obviously, that has its place as well. And I shouldn't really be entirely dismissive of that. But as far as someone being in elective office goes, they want someone who's going to be able to lead and have the courage to even stand up to their own base when it's necessary. And, you know, I think that's really the, the key to moving forward here. That's really what the progress is. If we want to move forward, if we want to be quote unquote progressive, we need to progress. And that means moving away from this extremism that we're seeing on both sides. I mean, there's, there's a real danger that the Democrats can lose their party to what's essentially the Tea Party, you know, the equivalent of what the Tea Party was and the Republicans a few years ago. We need to move away from that. And I do think to the Times credit, uh, their endorsement is a representative of that idea. I'm not sure if I agree with that. I don't think there is an equivalent um, to the Tea Party and to the like the real violent militia kind of um, I, like, I, ideology of the, the extreme right that I, is grounded in like violence, guns, racism, um, right. separatism. That's not what we see on the even extreme left of progressives. I mean, you know, they're from the New York Times themselves as well. Like there are a few daily episodes about like what happened to eco terrorists, right? Like what happened to the weather underground? Like we don't actually see these similarly violent, similarly separatist or anarchical um, movements on the left anymore. And right. it's I think there's a overemphasis on the the rhetoric being extreme, especially when we talk about like gender identity and sexual orientation, um, which might just be uncomfortable for folks versus like the physical violence of people bringing guns to like the Capitol to try and kill, <laughs> kill the vice president, you know, it's just, it's just right. not the same scale. Right. And I, and I agree with right. on, that, on that point that there, there, there is there is some, a lot of extremism on both sides, but I do think the the extremism on the right is in a way different category. Uh, it's 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 more violent. It's more aggressive. Yes. It's more rooted in in some of these things like like racism, like xenophobia, like you know all of these types of things. That you know, even though we have some things on the left, it's it's not the same equivalent as the people. It's not the same thing in terms of the beliefs or the principles, what they stand for. I agree. I agree the extremism on the right has been much more dangerous in terms of what it represents. But I'm talking about in terms of the way that it's destroying the parties, right? Destroying the, in our case now, the ability of a democratic party to even be taken seriously and to win elections and be competitive on a national scale. Um, you, you have things like, you know, basically cannibalism, political cannibalism in a way that's very dangerous. So, yes, I'm not talking about what they represent in terms of what the ideologies are. I'm talking about the political posture, I guess, of that um, and how people are looking at it like most people are kind of in between the extremes and they're saying, I'm not going to vote for a party if they stand for abolishing police or abolishing private property or moving towards segregation. These are dangerous ideas, but maybe not the same way in, as some of the ideas on the far right, but they don't like that either, right? People are somewhere in the middle of, of these extremes. And, you know, I think that's 
uh, a responsible uh, party is going to move towards being responsive to that. And I think, you know, it's our job as folks who are engaged in public discourse and then definitely the job of journalists in the fourth estate overall to like actually accurately portray how those movements and how that how much that rhetoric actually represents the party, the people in it and the communities they serve. Right, and right. so sure it pops up, but just because it's a trending topic or something that Fox, you know, Tucker Carlson has latched onto on Fox News doesn't mean it actually represents a dominant view of the party or anything. But it's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to dismiss it in that way because it is actually very prevalent in a lot of these districts and a lot of these areas, New York City being one such area. I mean, I would take questionnaires from some of these groups who do have a lot of influence in the city, and maybe they don't have a lot of members in my particular district, but they still have members to, who can volunteer and they can give money and they can do mailers and do resources and they play a role in all of our elections here in New York. And they do have these purity tests, and, and some of the questions are pretty outrageous. Now, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, you know, I'm saying it's the same exact thing as the violence on the right. But I'm talking about politically, it's, it's dangerous for the Democratic Party to be controlled by these groups who are on the extremes with a lot of their visions. And, and when I say extremes, I mean they're outside the mainstream of most voters, especially in a district like mine, which is more representative, I think, of a more moderate district that you find around the country, not necessarily around New York City. Um, you know, just for example, you would get questions like, do you want to give constitutional rights to elephants? Do you want to make every eviction illegal? Do you want to abolish the police? You know, do you want to get rid of all private property? And you can say, I agree with some of what you're trying to get at and the principles that you stand for. But, you know, casting it this way is not a way that's going to work. It's not a policy that really works at this point. It's not a message that's going to resonate with people. You know, even the idea of do you promise to boycott Israel? That's that's a very dangerous question. And that's, you know, that's not really a way forward, in my opinion. You know, in my opinion, being controlled by these groups who make these demands and who are so unrigid is dangerous for us. And it really is happening. It's not an imaginary yeah, just the candidates me. who agree to these things get the resources and they're given a leg up in these elections and they tend to win these primaries. Just to clarify what you're talking about here is that you have these groups that, um, you know, the community groups, political groups, whatever, that will offer endorsement to candidates running. And what will happen is they will send the candidates questionnaires on everything that, that you know, they want to get answers on to, to decide who they're going to endorse. And in these questionnaires, you'll have these questions. And usually, you know, there's, there's not a lot of flexibility. They, you know, either you agree with everything they put down there, no matter how outrageous it is or you don't get any sort of endorsement from them. So some of these questionnaires do include some of these outrageous things. Right. And, you know, and, and that's, that can be an, an issue uh, as well. So, um, yeah, no, I've seen those before. Um, but, you know, if you look at who the number one fundraiser is for the Democratic Party, and like, I'd say arguably, like, fundraising, right, speaks to control in a sense of the party, it's Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi is the number one fundraiser. Um, it's not AOC. It's not Bernie. It's not any of the more far left candidates. It's a, it's 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 the speaker. Um, so you know, I think we should be careful a little bit of using like the word control again. It might be what the dominant. Uh, it might be what the media has latched onto, but the reality on the ground and in terms of dollars is is quite different and is you know. Uh, is not uh is not as far left 
is not as the, the thing is though that's more targeted to certain races whereas if you look at the, the wide net that's being cast you're seeing there's more energy amongst these far left groups because what you're finding is that people who are more if you want to call them moderate minded they don't get involved to that extreme degree right they more and more busy with their families their lives whatever they're they're not obsessed with this political stuff but the energy tends to be in the extremes and the side effect of that is you do see these questionnaires i got so like i said i got a ton of these questionnaires you don't really get questionnaires from these more moderate groups they don't really exist to that same extreme degree you're getting them from these groups who want to influence the elections in a way that's uh, coming from the extremes um and they do call them purity tests because you do have to answer their questions with 100 percent the way that they want otherwise you can't get their support and you might agree with 85% of what they have to say, maybe maybe 90, 95%. That's not good enough. Sometimes they'll send you 500 questions. If you're not 500 out of 500, then they're not going to support you. There's always going to be someone who's going to step up and say, you know what? Yeah, I'll do it. I'll give constitutional rights to the elephants. Why not? And they're unfortunately the candidates who get the resources to compete in these races. A lot of the unions, by the way, do this as well. Um, now Maybe. to be clear, this question about the elephants was an actual question. That was that, an actual question. You, yeah, you, so not not making not, yeah, not making up like Fox News making up. Some no, no, no. That, that was an actual question that one of these groups insisted that you said yes to, and right. it's dangerous. And I think now there's some talk to have a little bit more flexibility because they're seeing what happens when you don't you you lose in a spectacular way, um, and I think that. Um, that's going to hopefully start to change a little bit. But up until now, and, and I can speak really chiefly to New York City politics, this is what we've seen, that th these extremist groups really control the primary in terms of the resources, meaning the money that comes in, the expenditures that are made, the volunteers. You know, moderates aren't really out there to that same degree. The energy isn't really there to that same level. It, it is the extremists who are doing this. That's, but I think that would be everywhere though, right? I mean, extremists on either side of anything are the ones that are really motivated to get out and, and hit the right. ground and things. And, no, and so Erica, Erica made the point though that, that Nancy Pelosi is the biggest fundraiser, but I wanted to clarify that that would be targeted to certain maybe swing districts or what have you, and, and, and then to a higher degree of money, which makes up for it. But Nancy Pelosi yeah. hasn't given money to New York City districts. But she's she not giving money, but she's definitely fundraising. And, you know, the groups that I'd be interested in what you think are the controlling groups. I mean, these groups are unions. These groups are uh, like work, like representation, like uh, groups that represent workers, um, usually like city and state workers. Um, so, you know, no I, I would the messaging. Well, but I wouldn't say those folks are are extreme progressives at all um necessarily and i think too if people had the time to engage there, right? in politics we'd actually see a more progressive vision than what is represented even by who are presumed to be far left candidates but because right, people true, are busy, true, truly progressive like, i agree with that the problem is the people who call themselves progressive now are actually regressive in many cases and we're losing because of it and I think, but it also, I think you could, you could separate that out. You could, you know, if you're talking nationally, maybe Pelosi, but it could also be um, different depending on the area you're in. A certain district might be more controlled or more influenced by a certain extreme group that might be not be the same in a different district or a different state or a different part of the country. So I think it can be very, um, you know, individualized in, in regards to where you're at. 
You know, but I think so, it needs to be more individualized based on a, you know, a district by district approach. Unfortunately, you haven't seen that so far. You've seen a one size fits all approach or an attempt to make a one size fits all approach, which hasn't worked. So the people in my district, for example, may not agree with any of the messaging from these groups, but the candidates who espouse that messaging, who agree to say, yeah, I'll do 500 out of 500, they'll get the resources from these groups who are trying to win everywhere. And that helps them in their primaries because the money doesn't have a message attached to it, right? A dollar bill doesn't have the candidate's platform written on it. It's just more, more resources for that candidate to campaign with. Um, well, it kind of does the, if they've got their endorsement. It kind of does if, it, if they, the candidate's got that endorsement and they're listing that we're endorsed by this group. So that, well, that right. message is attached. Cool. True, but oftentimes it comes in the form of dollars or it comes in the form of campaign volunteers or independent expenditures. So if they send a mailer to every voter in the district, they might not be saying, you know, we are such and such group and we endorse this candidate because they want to give constitutional rights to elephants. They might just say, this is a great candidate who's fought for the people, vote for this person. And, you know, they, they make it look nice. They make it look, you know, appropriate for that district. At least oftentimes they try to cater the messaging to it. But the reason why they're backing that candidate in the first place is because of those extremist views and the, the, those views are not in touch with the people and they're also oftentimes not in touch with the workers who make up those groups but it's the leadership and sometimes they have these agendas like you know they, they wanted to have a certain person elected to the speaker of the council so that they can have a two-term speakership and this was a there was a concerted effort to try to get that done so they're targeting uh, districts around the city regardless of what the ideologies or the, you know, the, the political makeup of those districts are, because they're just trying to win as many as possible to get votes, to get enough city council members elected to vote for their choice of speaker. So that's the kind of agenda that you'll see out there. So oftentimes the messaging does not match the district or even you know, the people who are putting money behind the messaging. Um, you know, it's just certain people who are, trying, who are pulling these strings who are in leadership who are really poisoning our system. Let's give... Let uh, see if uh, Erica had uh, uh, something to say on that, and let's get into Erica and what she does and what she's about. And, and you know, you, did you have anything to say about about that part there? Uh, no, I think you know we kind of got into it. I think we'll just have to agree to disagree on on that piece. And I think you know the money and ultimately like the the platforms that we see at like the DNC that we'll see in twenty twenty three, et cetera. Um, the advertisements from candidates will show us like what the those in control are actually dictating and, and what we're going to see is that they're not actually substantively progressive. Um, but I really believe that we need a strong progressive um, front to to get this country into some semblance of um, stability. Uh, so. Um, yeah, I, I, I and I tend to agree with with you on that point as well, that there, you know, we need to have um, and, and I think even Mike as well, that there needs to be some progressivism in in the in, in the uh, in the mix or in the forefront to get things to going. And you've got um, you've got some background that you were in the in the Obama White House and you're in a lot of these progressive movements and whatnot. So can we let's talk about you and, and your background and, and you know what you into well it's funny because i think in my circle of friends <laughs> i'm the more moderate uh even though i definitely identify as a progressive but given that i have been a part of the establishment in certain ways whether that's in government or working in 
the private sector um, and working in policy at the, in the private sector for the private sector uh, that that sort of uh, kind of mitigates um, my positioning. But um, I started off actually working in environmental policy and I knew since I was really young that I wanted to work in environment. Um, I was also really interested in working in civil rights because it was just apparent to me not not even speaking from my own experience because I had a very relatively privileged experience as a mixed race black girl growing up in Sacramento, California, which has no racial majority and is one of the most integrated cities in the country. It's actually more integrated than New York, even though New York is the most diverse. Um, where I, it was just evident to me politically, et cetera, from a very young age that like we're operating in a country that has as its kind of core, like a structural racist um, infrastructure. And uh, I was kind of like warned by my dad, by other mentors, like not to get involved um, in that as a career in civil rights because it would pigeonhole me because it would kind of like, um, for lack of a better word, kind of blacklist me. And so I thought, okay, well, what can I do to still make things like better for people and work in public service that's a, li a little less controversial? And I came up with the environment. Um, and once I actually dug into my environmental policy work, I found really early that you can't divorce race from that analysis either, in that um, affordable housing is an environmental issue. If you think of the environment as anywhere where people are living, where they're working, where they're playing, where they're interacting with the world around them, um, the environment is, is everywhere and every piece of that. So affordable housing is a piece of that. Um, being, you know, having your home or your apartment next to like commercial waste sites or factories, that becomes an environmental issue because that affects air quality, that affects your health, et cetera. And so making those connections reinforced to me and affirmed for me that actually thinking about race and all the things is actually really important. And it is, uh, it's very much how this country operates. Um, so uh, I went from, a, you know, studying environmental policy to working in environmental policy at a regional level in Seattle, um, and then went straight to DC graduation night to work for the Department of Transportation because I was just that much of a nerd um, and really excited to get into it. And then uh, transitioned to government affairs with the Pew Charitable Trust um, and then found myself um, up for a White House appointment. Um, so I ended up at the Office of Management and Budget in the Executive Office of the President working on natural resource budgeting. And what's really cool, at least at the time, about how natural resources are categorized by the federal government is that it's not just what you we traditionally think of, like, um, you know, Department of Interior, so like land use, right? Or the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. It's also NASA. It's also all of the um, arts and the science foundations. Um, so they had a really expansive view of natural resources being not just um, uh, resource capital, but like also intellectual resources and creative resources. And there's kind of a beautiful poetry to that and that I found. And so it was um, a really cool experience to be at the White House during the Obama years um, because I really did, you know, believe in both the representation and the importance of representation but also what I thought was a generally pretty progressive politic. I think 
um, upon reflection, um, I would revisit that a little bit. But at the time, it was very inspiring and be to be able to be to provide both a micro like function within all of that and then see like its macro impact was 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 pretty powerful. Um, and it was it was like the best place to work in terms of like the perks and like the insights again if you're like a nerd. Um, but then also it was like one of the most respectful environments in the workplace I've been in. Um, and after that, I went to grad school at Oxford, uh, finished in the, during the government shutdown, so had to figure out something else to do and ended up working at Google um, in the private sector, which I never expected to. Um, and uh, was just kind of blown away by like the resources available to really do good things and like it at the margins. Um, so while my work was at first helping recruit like executive candidates. Um, so like your president level, VP level folks. Um, my work at the margins was about sending resources to teachers, um, training people on how to volunteer uh, in like kind of uh, different specialties and areas, um, getting resources to small business owners and nonprofits, both financial and like in-kind and upskilling. Um, and then I moved to the patent team, worked on IP issues there and then again, like, wow, races and everything came up again when I learned in my research uh, that um, IP is one of the most like stratified fields and also it's like one of the whitest and 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 this is where a lot of wealth generation wealth is generated both for individuals and corporations. Um, and so got to then work with the US patent and trade office on kind of their first studies about diversity in patenting and in IP generally. Um, then went to lead uh, Pinterest DC office and had my first uh, like personally racist experience, uh, which I ended up speaking out about in the news and helped get a law passed that makes sure that in California and now Washington state, um, if you've experienced discrimination, no matter what settlement or agreement you've signed and yay, whatever, you should be able to speak to your experience. Um, and so really proud of, of that work. And so with all of that together and kind of, uh, you can probably notice like themes of um, interconnectedness and merging both like the natural or like the objective with the human, um, that brought me to starting my own consulting firm, um, SHISO, which is an intersectional equity consulting firm started at the beginning of the pandemic that helps nonprofits, um, companies, especially startups, kind of build with equity by design from the foundation. And if not from that foundation, um, how to fix that um, and create the kind of intellectual infrastructure to build products, programs, and just companies and institutions that center um, equity and build that more um, you know, progressive and uh, humane version of the world that I think we sorely need right now. Now, when you say with equity, what, what exactly do you mean with when you say with equity? Well, equity, I think, you know, looking up like the the definition beyond like resources is um, a deeper version of equality in which there is both accurate, um, accurate and also, I guess, sensitive representation of people uh, based on their background across a variety of characteristics and not just race, but making sure that communities, that customers, that the um, neighborhoods, cities, countries we work in, operate in and expect to then, you know, benefit from monetarily are adequately 
um, and equally represented, um, serviced, um, and um, incorporated into, um, you know, into our products, into our services, into how things operate. Um, and so equity is about restoring, um, restoring accessibility, uh, restoring access. Uh, I said that already, but restoring access really to folks who have been shut out, to folks who have been denigrated generally um, across the board. And there's a great graphic that has kind of circulated about the difference between equality and, and, and equity, right? Like equality is where everyone's given the same amount of something or like say you three kids want to look over a fence but they're all different heights right and they're all given the same level stool well that's great but that means the shorter kids won't be able to see over the fence whereas equity is about let's make sure you all have the same view over the fence so one person might need a taller ladder right one person might need a very short step um so equity is about again like we've been talking about and which is the name of the podcast nuance Right. Right. And, and I think sure and, and, we have equal access. And that's what's important in any of these discussions. I mean, no matter what side people are on, on anything and discussion, not just discussions, but in organizations in in movements in inter interpersonal connections like that nuance um, is, is very important and is often lost. So your, your company is called Shiso, right? Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to assume part of the she is from Shimizu. Oh, funny. You know, actually, it's just the herb. Shiso. Yeah, (laughs) which is a Japanese word, right? So my mom is Japanese. She lives in Nara, Japan. Um, I spent a considerable amount of time in Japan. Um, Actually, this is how Jay and I met because we were on a podcast uh, for a um group called super smash hose which is like a feminist group of exchange students in japan um and they had us on to talk about like race and racism in japan post george floyd um so that was how we met so yeah shiso is actually just the plant um and that's a nod both to like my environmental policy roots but also to my to my own cultural heritage and i felt like it was something unique enough that folks would remember but it's like not too difficult to say um and pretty short to write I was, I thought it was a play on words on something. I was like, okay, she, so it's gotta be something. She from Shimizu, maybe, maybe she's taking she, so to also, of course the herb, but also um, she's so. That's what something. I was thinking, right? Yeah, she's so, you can play off that too. Oh, I'm not that clever. <laughs> I, I think it's the hip hop brain. Like, more hip hop heads, yeah. <laughs> it's the hip hop head. I'm like, there's gotta be some 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 double meanings here somewhere. This has to be. Bars. Well, maybe we'll work Bars. it out. I'd yeah. love for you guys to uh, send me your recommendations. That would be yeah. that would be great. Yeah, let's go. Erica's got bars around here. <laughs> yeah, it could be like a whole ad campaign. She's so blank, you know, dedicated, devoted, passionate, all that kind of stuff. That's oh, I like that part of it. That's what I was thinking part of it. Yeah, I like that. You might see that from me <laughs> sometime soon. I'll I'll give you credit. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's up. That's what's up. So that's 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 great. And you've been in New York for. Um, you're not originally from New York, so how long have you been been there? So I'm kind of barely here. Uh, I am from California. Uh, I lived in DC for the last 12 years. And just as of the last couple of months, I now split my time between okay. Brooklyn and Washington, DC. Okay. Yeah. So I, I figured that's why when well, I was surprised, I saw something on your stories and you were in New York. I'm like, wait a minute. I didn't think that's where she was at, but okay. I like uh, to keep folks guessing, you know. 
So, and where can <laughs> where can they find um, your your company and and info about you? So you can visit my website, shiso.biz, S-H-I-S-O.B-I-Z, or uh, my personal website, erica.co, A-E-R-I-C-A.co. Um, you see my work in the wild, uh, especially with Color of Change. I helped create the Beyond uh, the Statement Tech Accountability Framework, um, encouraging um, tech companies to take on equity audits. Uh, building on uh, the requests from shareholders um, and and now um, legislators. Uh, I recently spoke on a panel Congress on the um, Algorithmic Accountability Act, which I contributed to and endorsed. Um, and uh, you can find on my website uh, videos and other places I've spoken, et cetera, to, to learn more about my work and kind of what I'm about. That's what's up. That's what's up. I will have to say, that the spelling of Erica, A-E-R-I-C-A, it's not really a Japanese spelling that's got to be from the black side. Oh, absolutely. My daddy wanted me to be unique. It's got to be. Mission accomplished. We'll take, there is an Erica as far as Japanese as a name, but he had to right. add some, some blackness to it. It's like, okay, let's throw something a little extra on The mission was accomplished because now she could have her own website with just the first name and it's uniquely hers. Exactly. exactly. I don't think anyone else has it in that spelling. So I, you know, I, I struggled with it as a kid, you know, being teased and like having a substitute teachers always pronouncing my name wrong. But now I'm grateful for it for those very reasons. I, I know. Oh, this Jay, you dealt with that, too. I did. My my full first name is Jaylon, J-A-Y-L-O-N. And growing up, no one had that name. Now you can see it. It's out there. But people still mispronounce it. They mispronounce that O in there like it's a Y and say Jalen or like it's an E. And it's like growing up, teachers would mispronounce it all the time. So I went by J exclusively because they would always mess the name up. So I understand your struggle. I feel that. <laughs> we did have a very spirited discussion and we're well over the hour, but we did have one more topic we wanted to get to. We'll keep it brief because we do have a poll question that we want to ask in relation to this topic, but it's about marijuana convictions. And it really should there be any prisoners of cannabis in today's day and age, given the move towards legalization. Of course, it's still against the law federally and many states still haven't completely legalized it yet, but it's where we're heading. And should people still be locked up because of it? There's actually an interesting case. I find it interesting because it's a guy that I we kind of know. I don't really know the dude personally, but Jay, you might remember we went yeah. to Summer Jam. I'm trying to think of what Not Summer Jam, Scribble Jam. Scribble Jam, yes, you're right. The yeah. first night there was a performance where this guy Dose Now was performing. He was the guy, if you remember, who was I getting remember. his head shaved while he was rapping. Remember that? Yeah, and didn't he jump off the stage or something at one point? No, no, you're thinking of Deuce Leader, I think. Okay. He wasn't battling. I don't think this. This. Right. He, he, no, he was. No, you're right. He was in the battle at one point, but but not. That wasn't the same guy. But no. But we saw him performing a set where he was rapping his his songs, and that was like right. the gimmick, I guess, of that particular set. That stuck with me. He, I think, he was like in a barber chair, getting his, his hair cut while he was rapping. Right. I kind of Mike King was there. He was always a big, you know, uh, collaborator with him. So this guy uh, Dose Down, he became a lawyer like myself. He went from hip hop, became a lawyer. But uh, ended up going down a slightly different path then. He got involved in uh, selling cannabis. And actually turns out that, uh, according to these articles that are coming out now, that he was, I guess, the biggest wholesale 
seller of marijuana in the Pittsburgh area. And the reason why he came under heat, according to these articles and you know uh, magazines that are out now, is because they were, I guess, trying to crack down on one of the gangs, one of the street gangs in Pittsburgh. And it turns out that he was supplying their cannabis. And so he ended up getting on their radar and uh, they ended up going after him. I guess he didn't want to testify against anyone else. So he ended up taking the fall and was sentenced to five years now in prison for these uh, drug charges, weed charges. Um, to some is successful. Some of the articles are coming out saying he's the last marijuana prisoner. I mean, in today's world, do we think it's appropriate to punish someone simply for, we're talking about nonviolent here, simply selling cannabis? Do you, know, do you think that's a reason to keep someone incarcerated in this day and age? Absolutely not. But I also think it's an overstatement to say he's the last one. Um, if you look at right. mandatory minimums and if you look at parole uh, uh, rejections, you're going to see a lot of folks, particularly black and brown folks, who are still being put away for marijuana. And, you know, even and that and not at that level. Exactly. I think it's um, a really optimistic thing to say, right? Like, he is. Yeah. Like, yeah, let's hope. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean. And also people are getting picked up all the time um, with marijuana as a pretext for all sorts of other regressive uh, criminal charges um, that are really just kind of attacks on poverty. Right. So let's uh, go ahead and we'll put that out there as the poll for next week then. Um, if about the about marijuana, if there should be anyone still being right. Arrested. So I guess we can, can phrase it like this. The poll question of the week is, do you think there should still be people incarcerated on marijuana offenses? Right. Yeah, I think we're all in agreement here that that's that that shouldn't be a case. It's it's crazy. I don't think so. And, you know, the way they tried to justify it in this particular case was that he kept the gang, I guess, operational because he was given them. Right. But you know what? If marijuana is legal and street gangs can get it and, you know, from a legal place, from a dispensary and still sell it on the street and still do what they do. So, you know, how are you going to pin it on the guy selling the marijuana, which I think as a society, we kind of agree isn't really a terrible thing to do. All right. So, I, I mean, you know, that could be another avenue there, uh, Erica. You could uh, lay some uh, some weed with some shiso herb. <laughs> Add a different flavor to it. Yeah. I wonder if there is a shiso, uh, at least a vape cartridge or something. Maybe in Japan, that could be, not that could here. Be one of the images online, she's so she's so high right now. So high. <laughs> yeah, I was. I, I was think a more artful way to phrase that. Yeah, Japan's still still behind in that in that regard. But yeah, uh, you know, even though. It does grow wild in the island of Hokkaido and probably in other places too, but in, in certain parts in Hokkaido, the government just leaves it alone because it just grows wild up there. But, you know, it's still illegal out in Japan. Right. So and the poll that we put out, by the way, let's, let's mention real quick. Overwhelmingly, people said that it should be federal, it should be legalized at the federal level. So absolutely. we're already at that, right? So if it's going to be legal everywhere, why are we still locking people up for this? And why are people still in prison? Why shouldn't they, why aren't they let out? So, yeah. you know, so I think we have cannibalized Erica's time enough and we've gone way beyond. We did get into a, a pretty uh, deep debate. Um, and I, but I think it's a good one to, to hear all different sides and because that's, that's what's missing. People need to hear different sides, even if they're opposing sides, they need to hear those things to, right. to sift through. Get out, um, get out of our bubbles. We have to get out of our bubbles. Otherwise, you know, we're going to 
everyone's just going to just do this because they're not listening to anything else. So really appreciate you joining us uh, this week, Erica, and um, for everyone else to join us on YouTube and on other podcast platforms. And of course, everyone in the chat, Lixa says unique names are the best. I agree. Those are pretty cool. Um, so everyone, thank you for, for, for joining us. And uh, don't forget, subscribe, right? You can watch this on YouTube. The replays are available. Nuance with Mike Scala and Jay Carter. Also, the audio is found wherever podcasts are available. And with that, Erica Shimizu Banks, what is the box? Literally just one word. No, no, you can make a statement. Oh, okay. Um, my statement is, um, the, bottom line is? the bottom line is now is not the time to play it safe. The time is to be uh, bold in our vision for a progressive future. And uh, I think the overturning of Roe um, demonstrates that. And I hope that could, I, I'm hopeful that could be enough to bring it home for the more progressive Democrats, regardless of who, what the New York Times says uh, come election day. Okay, there you go. let's go. Well, thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Erica, Jay, everyone. Catch you all next week. Thank you. Bye.